Donnelly. And I'm Jess McGaw, and you're listening to A Grey Matter, the Queensland Brain Institute's neuroscience podcast. This episode, we're chatting to three young female scientists about their research, what drives them, and the challenges they face as women in science. Uh, Hi, my name's Mia. Uh, I work in Professor Perry Bartlett's lab, looking at optimising exercise uh, for older adults and improving or maintaining cognition. Hi, I'm Xiaoying. I'm from Migra and Owls Lab. Uh, I'm uh, working with animal model for schizophrenia. Hi, I'm Chelsea Rochebe. I work in Associate Professor Bruno Van Swinderen's lab. Um, I'm primarily interested in the genetic basis of sleep in Drosophila. For our listeners, what are Drosophila and what's the question you're trying to answer? Drosophila is basically just the common fruit fly. So it's the same fly that you see buzzing around the fruit in your kitchen, um, you know, around bananas and apples and things. Um, we use these organisms because they're actually very genetically similar to humans. Um, and the nervous system is especially similar when it comes to uh, the genes involved. Um, the primary question I'm interested in asking is what is the genetic genetic basis of sleep? Um, what, why do we need to sleep? Um, what is the importance of sleep function? I think for people listening, a, a lot of them logistically don't really understand, you know, how do you study sleep in a fly? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, So obviously you can't ask a fly like, oh, how'd you sleep last night? Did you dream? Was it restful? Um, So we have to, we have to observe their behavior. And surprisingly, flies sleep very much like humans. Um, They sleep most of the time at night. They have a little siesta during the day. Um, I wish I had a siesta during the day. The flies are lucky in that sense. Um, But we can watch their um, locomotor activity, so how much they move around. And we know when they're still for a certain amount of time and also how much they respond to a stimulus Um, we can guess whether or not they're sleeping. Um, Flies are actually incredibly useful to study sleep. Um, We discovered the circadian clock in flies, the genetics that regulate um, the circadian system, which is extremely close to the circadian system in in humans. So um, they're actually an incredible useful tool. Can you tell us a little bit about the circadian clock? So just to simplify it, the circadian clock is an internal system in our brains that tell us when to be awake and tell us when to go to sleep at night. Um, So it's that constant sleep-wake cycle that's regulated by that clock. To jump from sleep to exercise, Mia, what question are you trying to answer with your research? Uh, Well, the work that we're doing at the moment is very uh, translational. So we're basing a lot of our our, um, experiments at the moment on findings that have come out of the Bartlett Lab indicating that a certain amount of exercise can actually improve um, cognition and reverse dementia in aged animals. And we've now recruited a large cohort of older people and we're looking at identifying the mechanisms by which exercise improves cognition and, and stimulates brain growth or the growth of new brain cells. So Xiaoying, I know that your work complements a lot of the human studies that um, Professor John McGrath has done looking at large numbers of people and the risk factors associated with uh, lack of vitamin D. Can you talk a little bit about the link between vitamin D and schizophrenia? 
Yeah, uh, what John McGrath found in human is maternal uh, maternal vitamin E deficiency uh, will increase risk to develop schizophrenia e later in life. So this is an epidemiological finding. Therefore, we uh, try to establish an animal model with um, uh, vitamin E deficiency restrict to the gestation. And using this animal model, we try to uncover the etiology of the schizophrenia. As we record this, International Women's Day is coming up and we'd like to ask you what it means to be a woman in science. Um, for me, being a woman in science, I mean, first of all, I don't really see it as any different than being a man in science. I have the same passion. I have the same drive. Um, my reasons for studying science are similar to most men <laughs> in research. Um, the only difference is I feel like I have to work just that little bit harder to prove myself. Um, I have to go the extra mile. Um, I have to, you know, try to get more publications, things like that, um, generate more data just to show that I can compete with in a world that has primarily been male-oriented. I think to me, women in science is the balance between research work and being with family because I'm a mother of two kids and also I took three maternity leave uh, during a critical window when I have my first uh, early career fellowship. So it's really this kind of uh, career disruption kind of delay my career development. No matter the industry, maternity leave can certainly have an impact on women's careers. In science, do you think it's particularly disruptive? I think so. I believe so because my um, I'm doing. If you want, uh, as a scientist, if you want to uh, bring high quality research, it's need consecutive or continuous work. So if I take half year maternity leave, it definitely disrupt my experiment. And during this period of time, I can write my proposal or grant. However, I can't con conduct a true experiment. Yeah, I do. I do think one of the big challenges that that I see and I haven't haven't experienced that is around family and time and and you know maternity leave and and family commitments. Um, you know, women are are generally the primary caregivers. Um, women do take time off if they have have children. I've had lots of colleagues and um, that you know that do go through that process and do find it very hard to to um, keep on track or keep on top of, of their careers and that's something that as a woman is, is definitely a challenge that, that men very rarely um, face. You know, men can also be primary caregivers but in science that doesn't seem, you know, doesn't seem to be common. Um, so that I think is, is one, one challenge. Yeah, I guess the other challenge as well is around, you know, many times we you know, as young female scientists, we work for, um, you know, senior scientists that are in many cases uh, men. You know, I've never worked for, um, never had a, a mentor or a supervisor that is um, a senior female scientist. Um, and, and I think that that is, you know, I suppose product of the environment as well is that it, there are so many less women in senior positions in throughout throughout science in general, um, and that's I think a challenge that we definitely need to continue working on. Um, I, I think one of the other things that's that's really important um, besides the the children issue, and, and I struggle with that myself. Um, wondering when I'm going to actually be able to start a family being very early in my postdoc, but it's it's also women. Um, 
working with other women and supporting other women, um, we need to remember that we should be lifting each other up and supporting each other instead of competing with one another. Um, I know science is very competitive, but um, we need to stand together and and help each other get to those higher positions and uh, achieve the things that women 100, well, 50, 100 years ago have been fighting for. Why did you become a scientist, Mia? I, I, really, love, I really love discovery. Uh, I love being able to do different things every day. Um, I love being able to, to ask questions that people haven't asked before and, and figure out, and figure out a, a solution. Um, and I think it's such a, a liberating thing to be able to, um, to learn for your job and, and answer, answer big questions um, for, your, for your work. It's very exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, ever since I was a little girl, I was always challenge-driven, I guess. Um, I loved puzzles. I loved video games. Anything that took a little mental <laughs> processing to do. Um, when I initially went to university, I, I was in veterinary and science, so um, I did a lot with animal medicine. And, and I'm very passionate about animals, but I found myself really liking the biology and science behind it more than the actual medicine itself. So then I, I switched over to research and being challenged every day um, and coming in and knowing that there's always something new to do um, excites me every single day. And I, and I love that about this career is I never get bored. Xiaoying, you've had a different path into science. You were a doctor? Originally, so um, I learned clinical medicine, so I was a doctor in China. However, during uh, that uh, learning process, the first three, uh, two and a half years, I was doing that uh, research uh, experiments. And from that time, I love to do the science. And also, I like those sorts of challenging. So all the, um, I really want to uncover new mechanisms for the disease. And also, the rewards the science gave me is immerse, is so enjoyable. For people who aren't in the world of science, what does the day in the life of a scientist look like? Um, well, I, I guess it really does depend on the the phase of the research year as to what your what your day looks like. You know, at certain points of the year, we are very busy writing and writing grants and um, you know, uh, fellowship applications and. Um, things like that. Uh, at other points of the year, we're very busy running the experiments that we've, you know, had approved in in previous previous rounds. Uh, for me, my day I actually work a lot lot with people. So I'm in the clinic very early, about six o'clock in the morning. I'm taking blood samples from participants. I'm working in the lab to prepare those. Um, you know, by about seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, I have you know, uh, my sixty-five to eighty-five year olds turning up, ready to do their exercise classes. Um, I have honors students and and research students working with me throughout that time. Um, you know, maybe around about midday, I have somebody coming in for an assessment, and we'll go through a cognitive assessment, a health assessment, um, a physical fitness assessment. Um, it, it very much depends upon the day. Um, then, of course, there's all your meetings, uh, your writing, um, a lot of work with with your data and 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 managing managing your data and understanding um, what you're what you're doing. So I'm actually um, pretty much straight out of my PhD. I've only been doing postdoc for about a year now. Um, so I'm 
I'm not to the point where I can actually apply for fellowships and grants yet. I'm, I still need to build up that publication record. So the majority of my time is, is really in the lab collecting that data, getting everything I need to publish as much as I can before I try to apply for those fellowships. Um, Science is slow. Um, <laughs> it's not like on TV where, you know, they can put a blood sample in a machine and push a few buttons and then, you know, they automatically get all the information they need. Um, it's it's like a puzzle, a big puzzle. You, you conduct experiments over a long piece of time and every time you finish an experiment, it's like getting just one of those puzzle pieces and then putting it together with another experiment until you've got a big picture. But the big picture can take years to achieve. Um, so my my day primarily revolves around um, planning out my experiments, conducting my experiments. I'm still learning about this area and this postdoc. Um, it's quite different than what I did for my PhD, so tons and tons of reading. Do you ever have to repeat experiments? Sure. It totally depends on the experiment. Um, you know, some of the experiments I have a lot of uh, experience with, so um, I only have to run it a few times, and I can be pretty confident with the results. But if it's a new assay or something I've, I've created and I'm building from scratch, which I like to call arts and crafts, <laughs> um, it's a lot of <laughs> writing code, building machines, making sure they work. They usually don't work. It takes months normally. Um, tons of troubleshooting, so... Yeah, um, a big chunk of my time is actually troubleshooting and failing. Lots of failing until we finally get it right. So given the amount of failure and organization and troubleshooting, why why do you persist? What drives you? I think you still get awards from your research. And after three months, you optimize condition and you see your amazing results in the final week. And you can report your uh, research in the high quality of journal. And then when people, or even to the general population, so that is the uh, achievement uh, reward you have. Chelsea, how about you? What do you find rewarding? Well, this is one of those jobs where um, the reward you get is proportional to the amount of work you put into it. Um, and you get such a high when you've gone such a long time where you haven't been able to produce results or you were having a lot of trouble with your experiments and then you finally get it to work it's the greatest feeling and you get to present your work and show the world this is what i've accomplished this is what i've done and it's it's those little highs maybe once or twice a year that you get um sometimes longer than that that really keeps you moving forward yeah well i suppose in um in more clinical or applied research, you know, I have one of the really rewarding things for me is the interaction with, with my participants. So, yes, I can actually ask them, you know, how did you sleep last night? <laughs> did you have a dream? You know, um, what have you eaten in the last 24 hours? Like all these, these sorts of things. And, um, you know, within the clinic that we operate out of, we have a very um, – bustling it's exciting and there's lots of people there you know all the time and and it's a real community and that's one of the really nice things about clinical research that that is a little more applied and a little more um i suppose um direct benefit to the communities and the, and the people that that you work with um you know at the end of the day yes i do love 
the discovery and I love finding finding answers but seeing the tangible benefits uh, for for people that we're working with is is really really rewarding and, and knowing that the work that I'm doing now is going to produce guidelines and, and recommendations and, and hopefully drug discovery um, to benefit benefit these people is is exciting that drives me what would be your advice to young women interested in becoming scientists science is really exciting and and girls and women are great at science and we really should see lots of lots more girls and, and women women entering into into science I think I would suggest uh, the girls uh, undergraduate should take some summer holiday project, or even owners uh, doing to, to do some work, bench work or lab work, for a couple of months or, 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 or half a year to see whether you love uh, doing science or not. Then you can make your own commitment uh, in this career. I, I think it's important to just fight for what you want to do in life. Um, I, I don't know if things have changed, but I remember when I was in high school, my teachers would always push me towards doing art or writing or something like that. And I just wanted to, you know, go build robots and go play in the dirt. And if that's what you want to do, don't be afraid of the stigma. Um, you know, get your hands dirty. Don't worry about having, you know, uh, the typical girl, you know, life. And the other thing is, once you do get into that field, you know, speak up, be heard. Don't don't be afraid if, if you're stepping on anyone's toes. Um, just put yourself out there. Thanks for joining us. That's all for this episode of A Grey Matter. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook, or you can give us a review on iTunes. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.